Hi everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host Jen Galler. And in this episode, I talk with Dean Rifkin, who's an attorney as well as a professor at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, College of Law. His work includes civil rights, air pollution, public interest, protecting the environment, and more. He has been counsel in public interest litigation concerning issues such as air pollution, TVA, and a challenge to the Tennessee Bear Tree Statute, as well as he's a member of the Southern Appalachian Mountain Initiative. A comprehensive effort to combat the adverse effects of air pollution on the national parks and wilderness areas in the southeast. With Dean, we speak about how he got into law, people's expectations of lawyers in Appalachia, the term petty disturbances, what he's currently working on, and how he thinks citizen groups can make the most effective change. To contact and connect with Dean will be in the show notes below. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, so hi everyone. I'm with Dean Rivkin, who is an attorney as well as a professor at University of Tennessee, Knoxville with the College of Law. And just starting out, could you talk about your background and how you got into law? Sure. I went to Vanderbilt Law School in 1968. And one of the reasons I picked Vanderbilt was in that era, Vanderbilt had a very strong presence in civil rights law. And they had a an institute and they had a progressive chancellor of the university. And I went to Vanderbilt because I was wanting, uh, because I wanted to be a civil rights, human rights lawyer. I was there from 1968 to 1971, graduated, then went to New York for a clerkship with the United States Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, where the work that I did and the work that I chose and the reason that I went to New York to, to do this clerkship was reviewing cases of prisoners who were seeking habeas corpus relief. This was in an era, again, when the uh, law was much more open than it is now to claims of unconstitutional convictions. And it was a great introduction to criminal constitutional law, and, and, and I enjoyed it. But I also wanted to get back to the region, the South, and I had an opportunity then to take a fellowship. It was called the Reginald Heber Smith Community Lawyer Fellowship. And I went to uh, Lexington, Kentucky, to work for Appalachian Research and Defense Fund of Kentucky. I had worked in the mountains while I was in law school and joined a small group of med students and nursing students who did health fairs throughout Upper East Tennessee and Southwest, uh, Southeast Kentucky. And during the summer of 1970, that was, and it was very clear to me that the major problems of the region were environmental problems. And and so I went back in 1972 to work for Appalachian Research and Defense Fund and did a lot of work fighting strip mining and fighting water pollution and fighting air pollution. Then uh, came to the University of Tennessee in 1976 to teach law. And needless to say, one of the areas that I taught was environmental law. That's, that's enough of an introduction, I hope. <laughs> no, that was great. 
And yeah, just going off, you're in Knoxville, kind of in the Appalachian region. So could you talk about people's expectations of lawyers in that area? And yeah, just their thoughts about them. Lawyers, as you know, have different practices, different approaches, different sets of clients. I I frankly always wanted to be a public interest lawyer. And I started out as a as what was called and still is a poverty lawyer. Appalachian Research and Defense Fund was funded by the Federal Legal Services Corporation. Actually, that came a couple of years later. It was funded by the Office of Economic Opportunity when I joined. And my fellowship came from the Office of Economic Opportunity. And, you know, our work was pretty open-ended in the sense that our mission was to represent people in the mountains, whether it be, whether it was Kentucky or Tennessee or West Virginia or Virginia, or actually anywhere throughout the Appalachian region. And a lot of the work I did, not all of it, but a lot of it was environmental work. And the the environmental work I did was always connected to community organizations who were resisting the destruction of their community through strip mining, through air pollution, through water pollution, most of it directly related to coal mining. When you ask, you know, people's perception of lawyers, I have to say that our goal as lawyers with Apple Red, it's called, was to work with established and, and emerging community organizations and and let them guide our work as opposed to our guiding their work. They knew the the problems best. They knew what they wanted to accomplish. They knew what was feasible politically. You know, we were essentially law experts and that's all we saw our role to be as counselors and as litigators when our clients wanted us to uh, to do that. And they did on a number of occasions. And we represented groups such as the Citizens League to Protect Surface Rights, the Appalachian People Group to Save the Land and People. We represented Save Our Cumberland Mountains, which was founded, I think, in 72 or 73, and a host of smaller neighborhoods or communities, I should say, throughout the uh, the region. That was our purpose and mission, and it was a full one. Yeah, yeah, that was one of my questions is what kind of citizens groups did you work with in East Tennessee? So yeah, all of those are great groups and doing really powerful action. So could you talk about this petty disturbances and (laughs) what that means and the significance of that term? Well, that's a term that was used by um, a faculty member at Harvard Law School. I spent the 1975-76 year at Harvard Law School, also on a on a fellowship, a clinical legal education fellowship. Clinical law in law schools was not really very well developed at all during that time or before that time. And clinical education is working with law students on real cases, representing clients, going to court, working on campaigns, working on issues, whether it be in court, whether it be in the community, wherever our clients needed us. And, you know, that was 
an emerging field that now is exists and is offered at every law school in the country. You know, I I was quickly representing organizations in environmental cases because that's that was my background, that was my interest, and I was teaching courses in environmental law and policy, and I spent forty six years or so doing that. Yeah. And you don't just do the legal work for these organizations. You also are on the ground participating in actions and protests. So could you talk a bit about that? Well, that's a good point. And you asked about petty disturbances. Mm -hmm. Roberto Unger was the uh, faculty member at Harvard. He was Brazilian, actually. He was Mm -hmm. one of the most brilliant legal theorists and was one of the founders of what was called the critical legal studies movement. And the critical legal studies movement was very anti-hierarchical, very anti-capitalist, very progressive. And one of the terms that Roberto was using in his work was petty disturbances. Mm -hmm. I didn't like that term that much. It had a Connotation and petty disturbances were community resistance to various harms that those communities were threatened with. I didn't quite like the term because it wasn't petty for the people in the community. The idea behind it was this idea of resistance, local resistance to corporations, local resistance to environmental harms, local resistance to unconstitutional practices by government. It was fighting back. That was the image that I I felt was was appropriate for the work that I was doing with the uh, groups that I represented. Yeah. So you did participate also in like actions? Well, we were there. I want to say, you know, we were there as lawyers. We weren't necessarily there, I believe, very strongly in direct action protest. I think protest has played an incredibly important part in Appalachia to express grievances, to make corrections to the extent that law was oppressive to those people who were involved in the protest. Our role as lawyers in the protest were more to protect people from the police and from getting arrested if that was possible, Mm. if they were arrested, getting them out of jail and making sure that they were uh, represented by a good criminal defense lawyer the case so i as i said believe believe strongly in the power of direct action for change and we were there shoulder to shoulder i guess you might say with our clients although we typically stood in a in a in a location and watched our clients uh, engage in the forms of protest that they that they did uh, whether that was picketing whether that was marching whether that was visual protests using costumes or what have you you know we were there watching as lawyers we were there watching so that 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 expression could be robust and full and not not interrupted if possible yeah that's great still And do you see any themes in what you all would have to defend in the Appalachia area and what kinds of like topics or issues do you currently work on? There's been so many and and there are so many. 
Mm-hmm. Needless to say, energy extraction has been a significant part of the work that that I've done and and that we did, whether it was with Apple Red or when I came to Tennessee. And one of the first cases I did when I came to Tennessee was a lawsuit against the Tennessee Valley Authority suing 10 of their 12 coal-fired power plants, which were in violation of the Federal Clean Air Act for sulfur dioxide emissions and for nitrogen oxide emissions. Back then, those were kind of the main focus of the federal air pollution effort. There wasn't much concern back then for carbon dioxide, global warming, the research, the the work on that, the advocacy on that came later. And, you know, we settled our lawsuit. I was representing a coalition of, of advocacy groups here in Tennessee, whether they were health advocacy groups or grassroots uh, activist groups or environmental groups. And uh, we were able to achieve actually a settlement that led to significant significant reductions in the uh, pollutants that were in violation of the act when we brought the suit. When you have the perspective of time that I have, you look back and you say, gee, you know, did we do enough? Could we have done more? Mm -hmm. And I say that with respect to TVA air pollution, because in the 2000s, around 2010 or so, there was another lawsuit brought. I wasn't involved in it, at the time, I talked to the lawyers about it over TVA's air pollution practices, which also ultimately got uh, settled with agreements for the installation of pollution, more pollution control equipment. So, you know, there's no doubt that when I think about it, everything I've done has touches somehow the intersection of energy and uh, and environmental policy. And one issue that I've been working on very recently is a natural gas pipeline that is proposed by Enbridge Corporation that is running through, I forget exactly how many miles of Upper East Tennessee, bringing natural gas proposed, let me emphasize, proposed to bring natural gas to TVA's Kingston Steam Plant. TVA's Kingston Steam Plant is infamous because of the massive coal ash spill that took place there. I think it was in 2009. The uh, cleanup of that coal ash harmed, significantly harmed a number of workers. That case is still going on. But I think the flawed rationale for bringing this pipeline in, and it is flawed, is that uh, natural gas is cleaner, quote, than coal and TVA is doing something good for the environment by shutting down its coal capacity at Kingston and bringing in natural gas. I don't think that's the case. The groups I'm working with, the Sierra Club, the SOCOM, the uh, Appalachian Voices and others, uh, Southern Environmental Law Center is uh, the legal arm of this effort. None of us believe that this approach is prudent at a time when natural gas is being shown to be as harmful to climate change as CO2 is, harmful to health, and is just not an appropriate substitute when there are 
other sources of alternative energy if TVA needs those sources to uh, to go forward. So this is one of two pipelines in Tennessee. This one, as I mentioned, is being built by Enbridge, which is a company that has met resistance in many states, plenty of states. I don't want to emphasize, I don't want to over overstate. I'm not exactly sure the number, but Minnesota, other places, they've shown substantial disrespect for the environment, for Native American tribes, for the uh, the safety of their natu- natural gas pipelines. This project doesn't stack up and shouldn't be built, but they're going forward with their FERC license as I speak. And the resistance that people are raising to it is reminiscent of the resistance of the groups I represented around strip mining and which led ultimately to the enactment of the Federal Surface Mining Control and Reclamation Act in 1977, which itself was a flawed statute because it went on to permit mountaintop removal mining and wasn't as strong in terms of its pollution control requirements as it could have been. But as some people felt, it was a step forward to protecting the region. That may or may not be the case if you look at the harm that the region has suffered from coal mining, whether it be land disturbance, whether it be air pollution, whether it be water pollution, especially flooding. Just recently, there were horrific floods in the mountains, and much of that can be attributed to coal mining. This is work that can last a lifetime, and and for me, almost it has. So Yeah, definitely. And kind of just going off that energy and it's like a big problem everywhere. How can private companies pretend to be a public utility and say they're doing all of these things for your good? Yeah, it's a false narrative. It really is in my in my view. The utility companies are out to make substantial profits, you know, which in and of itself is not prohibited and yet the track record of many of the energy companies if you look at their track record of, of community harm, you look at their track record of environmental harm, you look at their track record of, of involving citizens in making decisions about energy supply in their communities. I mean, it is undemocratic and it fails. And to the extent that the legal work I've been involved with and many others have also has tried to breathe life into some form of meaningful participation by people and communities who have to live with this extraction economy that they that they have is is sad and i would say undemocratic and needs to be reformed and we're in a system where that kind of reform is very problematic as we all know from recent just very recent developments over permitting and over some of the environmental laws that the coal industry and some of the states that host the coal industry, West Virginia being prominent, uh, have advocated. So it's a never-ending proposition. The struggle itself, whether it be the legal struggle or the struggle on the ground by communities, at least I believe has broader implications for fighting the kind of corporate control that that exists and 
the more people who understand the harm that comes from these companies, the better. And to the extent that our legal cases, cases can create a narrative that will educate the people, whether it be people in the region or people outside the region, I think the the better. And uh, we were headed in a, a decent direction with some of the Inflation Reduction Act, and then there were roadblocks. So it's good work for lawyers, for public interest lawyers. When I say good work, I mean, it's meaningful work. It's interesting work. It is work that is client-centered, which I believe in very much. And it's going to continue and I'm going to continue to do it to the extent that I'm, I'm able. Yeah, that's great. And what do you think is the best way for grassroots groups to make change? Mm. Well, I will say this, even though it might sound sort of counterintuitive, I'll I'll come at it backwards. I don't think the law and litigation is the best way. That Mm -hmm. was your question. What's the best way to make change? I don't think law and litigation is the best way to make change. Mm -hmm. I think law and litigation can help make change. I think law and litigation can protect groups that are in struggles in their own local communities. They know those communities best. They know the environment in those communities best. They know the people in those communities best. I think it's got to come from that level. And of course, there's all kinds of national you know, signals that... Um, conservative, let's put it, let's use that term, <laughs> that that right-wing groups are seeing that local control of school boards and local control of utilities and local, local control of water districts and local, local control of the institutions that for a very long time have not been at the center of environmental advocacy and environmental change are institutions that need to be focused on. And I think that the groups that I'm working with, the groups that many people in the South anyway or around the country are working with are the groups that are going to make those changes in their local communities. At least at least they're trying. They're meeting the kind of resistance that they've always met. But I think there is a better narrative now. There is a better understanding of how you know a more democratic, environmental justice vision can be achieved. And it's got to come from below. It can't come from, the. it's certainly not going to come from the United States Supreme Court. And yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it's very problematic, at least in, the, in our region here, that it's going to come from any of the state Supreme Courts or local courts. So, and it sure doesn't look like much is coming from Congress either. Um, so, you know, the Inflation Reduction Act was a great step. This administration understands these issues better than any administration that I've seen in all of these decades. And they have good people leading the uh, various efforts at Council on Environmental Quality, at EPA, at uh, the Department of Justice. So we'll see what ensues for the next couple of years with uh, with that in place. So very important set of elections coming up in 2022, just a few weeks. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, and 24. So it's that kind of change that very hard at the national level, going to be extremely hard at the state level. And in my 
this is my opinion, needs from the local level. And uh, that's where organizing, that's where education, that's where those efforts need to be made and, and focused. And there's a lot from a lawyer's standpoint, from a legal standpoint, a lot of these smaller entities that have a lot of impact on the quality of, of life in a community, I mentioned some of them before, there is no law. I mean, nobody has really looked at those institutions from the standpoint of what can be what can be done to reform a local water board or a local utility board or a rural electric co-op or what have you. What can be done in the the law, if you will, to achieve change, positive change. And I think we're going to see a lot of efforts along those lines in, in the next period of time. And you kind of touched on it just now, but how can people in their communities get involved or take action when they either see or experience injustices? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the question, right? Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the that's what we used to call the $64,000 question. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a lot more expensive now. I think this is where organizing comes into play, whether that organizing is emanates from, you know, political organizing, progressive political organizing, whether it emanates from groups like Brettel or Sockham or Appalachian Voices or Sierra Club or or others. I think that's where, you know, that's where people get touched. I think it has to be on a very local, personal level. I think the importance of having people from the community who care and who are able to uh, reach out to their neighbors and their relatives and to uh, local officials, if necessary, people who have the credibility and the uh, grounding, if you will, to do that is where, is where change is possible. And I'm glad to see efforts along those lines by the organizations that I've mentioned before and by uh, others. So I have some optimism that there's going to be change as long as people don't count on the United States Supreme Court or even count on Congress because of its stalemate over over, over progressive change. The Inflation Reduction Act is an exception. It's a great law, but it too got stymied and uh, we're not seeing its full scope yet uh, and may never. So that's the level that I see change occurring. That's where it's going to come. Yeah, that's great. I I totally agree. And it's been so great talking with you and hearing your Thank perspective you. and expertise on this all. So yeah, just my last question is how can people contact or connect with you if they want to reach out or have questions? Well, they can reach me through the University of Tennessee College of Law website. My email address is easy. It's drifkin, D-R-I-V-K-I-N at U-T-K dot E-D-U. And I'm happy to communicate with people if if they email me. So keep up the good work at Brettel and all around the region. And thanks for this opportunity. Thank you so much to Dean for speaking with me. Anything we talked about in the episode will be in the show notes below. And tune in in two weeks for a new episode.